bad news. He was torn apart! Off his head like a gingerbread man. The wages of sin is gonorrhea, syphilis, and death. I'm the lord of the harvest. Yeah, how much blood jets out of a guy's neck when his throat's It's showtime! <laughs> listening to don't open this podcast i am your co-host mike falsigno joined by tim fenoya and today we are going to revisit our real slashers series this is the 60s to 70s proto slashers part two picking up right where we left off our last episode we're going back into technically it's just the 70s now because we covered the 60s and we have a very stuffed plate to present to you today. We're excited about it. We are going to have a lot of fun and I am just going to hand this right over to Tim because our first film is one of his favorites. Oh yeah. I would have to say probably in like my top five favorite horror movies, 1974's Black Christmas is easily makes a spot among that. Black Christmas. There was a little girl murdered over in the park tonight. Yes, I heard. A high school girl's been murdered. Mr. Harrison's daughter is missing. And now at the house where she lives, the other girls are getting obscene phone calls. Hello? <laughs> what are you doing? Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs? Remember those? Remember them well? After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Jolet, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. It's a comfort movie for some reason. It's a warm bath. It's I can just throw on Black Christmas while I'm working on a project, and it's perfectly fine. I'm happy to see it as many times as my eyeballs are willing to allow. But the the oddity of um, Black Christmas as a whole is it was directed by Bob Clark that some people might know from A Christmas Story. And it's a weird juxtaposition to go from A Christmas Story to Black Christmas, kind of covering both halves of the, the holiday season. <laughs> he made the best family Christmas film ever made. And he made the best holiday horror film ever made. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. He could just hang up his hat after that point and it's, you're fine. But it's the the sorority house and all of these girls that are there and they're starting to get these crank calls of some sort of kind of obscene caller is just saying vile things to them over the phone and they're kind of reacting to it as all of them are there over the, the kind of the holiday uh, time. And all of them start kind of one by one. It's 
oh, where's so-and-so? They were up in the room. Oh, they're, they're gone. They must have left. Or, oh, where did this person go? Where did that person go? As all of them are starting to get kind of picked off as these calls are coming through, we don't know where is it coming from, who's on the other end of the line here. We start thinking that it might be one of the main character's boyfriends because we see he has kind of a, an odd rage issue. It creates a, a mystery that kind of leans into n- not necessarily the, the um, giallo aspect, but just leans into the mystery of it. Of We get John Saxon, who's on the police force. Uh, I think he's like the, the chief or like the head um, investigator on the case. And he's working with the cops there of, okay, let's track the phone call. Let's see where it's coming from. Let's kind of check in on uh, any of the suspects. Let's bring them in. We're doing another search that's going on for another little girl or or a little kid that had gone missing in the town. And all of this stuff is going on that you, it keeps you off kilter of who is this exactly? Is it someone they know? Is it someone they don't know? Who's the next person? Are they, where are they coming from? And it's, it's a movie that I can watch, as I said, any number of times. And I'm sure that's probably the same case for you, Mike. Oh, absolutely. Again, Black Christmas, like, if Jaws is a perfect, uh, you know, giant monster movie, and The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, I, I feel is a perfect science fiction horror film, I think Black Christmas is the perfect proto-slasher. It's not 100% a slasher movie, but I do think it is the best that there is. And anytime I'm lucky enough to share this with a person who loves that genre but has never seen the movie, I always tell them, you're going to see four or five things that you will think are overused tropes and cliches, but this freaking movie created them. Like it literally created the things that you're so used to. And something that Bob Clark brings to this film that I think most slasher films lack, except for the exceptional ones, is the fleshed out characters. You absolutely care and like these characters. They're well-written. Margot Kidder is incredible in in her role. Um, Olivia Hussey plays a a very endearing character. Um, You've got some really solid actors. Art Hingle, just great people. And the den mother um, of this college campus, she's just absolutely wonderful. Like, you, you genuinely like her. So yeah, this movie has the right amount of humor, it, it's beautifully mounted in terms of the way the camera moves around. It, it, it's ominous, but it's got that, like Tim has mentioned, that warm feeling that holiday films give you. There's something about those 1970s Christmas lights. They're a little bit bigger. Like, like Christmas lights kept getting smaller over each decade. These are those nice, fat, round Christmas lights with the frosting on them. And all of the girls are just, you know... They, they have their different cliques within the group. And there's just the right amount of misdirection with red herrings. There's an element that has been ripped off so many times that I don't want to give away. It has an ending that is balls out like middle finger to the audience where, <laughs> where we, we can't spoil it. But the ending is like, it'll be frustrating for some people, but it'll be really creepy to other people. It'll get under your skin and make you think, like, what a creepy ending. I don't feel like this is a spoiler because the one-sheet posters have great artwork on them, and uh, there's a couple different ones for Black Christmas. 
but one of them showcases a woman in a, a student in a rocking chair with a plastic bag suffocating over her head and it's in a in a, a christmas wreath motif that murder happens very early on and it's one of those films where it shows you something completely scary and disturbing in the beginning then it just teases it out and it lets you wait you know more people are going to die but you really have no idea when and the fact that no one dies immediately after that it kind of lets you know that you you're going to be off guard for the rest of the movie you don't know who's next and i do think we've seen so many of these movies that when they kind of follow by the numbers you can almost sort of telegraph who's going to like you could pick out who's going to die and when and with black christmas you have no idea who's going to get killed. And I love that about that movie. And the other thing I'll touch on is the freaking calls. Nineteen seventy-four. Nowadays, with the internet and all of the crappy TikTok culture and all this stuff, you would think that there's no way to make someone uncomfortable in a in a seventies movie if they're they're from this generation now but tim back me up the way they mix those calls and what's in those calls oh yeah it, it makes everyone uncomfortable it doesn't matter who you are you cannot watch this movie if you watch it alone you might not be that uncomfortable but if there's someone else in a room with you you just feel like you shouldn't be listening to this with a person with you it it's very disturbing and i love it i absolutely yeah. love that part of the movie it's like the actual recordings of a madman. It's, I mean, it's the caller and it's these kind of vile, perverse things, but then also you're hearing like animal noises. It's kind of like child voices type thing. It's all over the place and it's unsettling. It's using the C word in such a way that you're adding words to it that make it dirty. And then like Tim said, it, it's almost like you're listening to pure psychosis somehow being captured because i'm sure that um when you guys are listening to this we got to throw a bit of one of the calls in there hello i know what you did billy filthy billy 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 stop this and then of course you know threatening these girls um, but there is one moment in, in that phone call scenario where the, the brassy, ballsy girl grabs the phone. It's Margot Kidder. Listen, you pervert. Why don't you go over to Lamp of Kai? They could use a little of this. And there's this moment where he just goes silent. And then in a very clear, whispered voice, he just says, I'm going to kill you. And it's so scary it's, that it's he goes that from yeah switch like, flip yeah he goes from ten to like one and the one is scarier than the ten and then also because we're covering the tropes you know the POV elements the the fact that it takes place on a on a holiday you know there's there's a Halloween connection there that a lot of people don't want to admit but it's there oh yeah because I mean well especially in a case of like we don't want to give away too much but there's certain shots and certain lingering shots and kind of like the the usage of them that definitely is a similarity that we'll see in halloween which for anybody that has seen both of them you'll probably know in terms of kind of what we're talking about there but the being able to see from 
what in this is, without seeing the the remake or anything else, what who we're assuming is this character Billy, this whoever there's talking about on the phone, is wandering around or kind of killing these people, and we see like the the breathing, we see the point of view of kind of dealing in the freakouts of this character as they're watching the the bodies and all of this. There's points where like he'll spring out from a location to get somebody that will see the the point of view and then we'll get a point of view from their side and it's jarring because it's kind of like when we had Leatherface of the and then the door strikes open and he just strikes and gets the person. It's that sudden primal jump that you get that um i think really ends up sticking with you from this movie with all the the billy stuff yeah the the plastic bag scene it's on par with the doorway scene from chainsaw where it's just it's beautiful editing it's a great performance they don't show you too much for too long and that that is something with black christmas there's a restraint that actually works and it makes the moments of extreme violence they're, they're short bursts but they come out of nowhere and they really do jar you. And yeah, it's it's just everyone should see that film because it's awesome. And there's actually I have no idea why, but there's not one, but two remakes of this film that are completely pointless. It, you, you're never going to get that that immediacy that you get from the original Black Christmas, that real quality to it. I've actually softened a bit on the 90 something one. Uh, one I think from it was like early 2000s. Early 2000s. It, I kind of look at it as not Black Christmas. Every once in a while I'll watch it, not as a remake, but like an alternate reality take on the idea. Yeah. And, and it's a mess, but um, I will give it credit for, it's got style and the performances aren't too bad. Um, I don't really like where they took it. I think the third act is kind of like a big mess. Yeah. But but you can't slight them on, on, on the violent elements. There's uh there's some pretty harrowing oh, like death yeah. sequences. So I have that in my collection, uh, you know, begrudgingly. Like I picked it up just to have it. Um and I'll I'll watch it once in a blue moon. The other recent remake, oh my god, that's it's a travesty in every way. And I, I watched that shit with an open mind. I'm a big fan of Imogen Poots, the actress. She was in uh, Green Room, which is ah, an awesome movie. Room. Yeah, Green Room's so good. And she played um, a pretty good uh, uh, lead in the Fright Night remake, which oh, is yeah. not it's not as bad as people say. But my God, man, this Black Christmas, uh, the, the newest one, it's just, it's yeah, just I, so bad. I watched it. It wasn't my cup of tea. If somebody out there, that's your favorite movie, man, that's, <laughs> that's terrific. <laughs> I'm glad that it hits an audience. It's just not my not my jam. No, it just makes so, no sense. So yeah, again, if you haven't seen Black Christmas, I <laughs> I know it's probably March, April, uh, but it's on Shutter, so check it out. It's yeah. still cold enough to be worthwhile. And really, every movie on this list, we want you guys to watch. But if we won't shut up about how much you need to watch a certain movie, it's because it's that good. And Black Christmas is that good. Oh, 100%. Which takes us to jolly old England. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, back over to the UK. Um, and actually, there's two movies by the same director, not back-to-back. I think this one is like the, the mid-70s and then late 70s, uh, like 74, 78. But Pete Walker did Frightmare. And then I also wanted to bring up uh, The Comeback. <laughs> <laughs> 
possessed by a terrible compulsion more hideous than the power of the devil. No matter how hard you try, you can never wake up from a frightmare more than a bad dream. Frightmare. Presenting Jack Jones, the international singing star, as the idol of millions who becomes a target for terror. A man fighting for his career and his life in The Comeback. Is he going mad? Or is there someone, someone who hates him enough to kill and kill again? The Comeback. So, Frightmare, Pete Walker was a, a director that I've more recently in the recent years kind of come into liking. I've discovered from my own viewings. Frightmare is a very interesting film for me. Um, it's so I, unique. I, it, it is. It's such a unique movie. Yeah, because it's, it's it keeps you guessing up to a point, and then once you get to the point, it's just like the wheels are off. It's just bonkers for a, a little bit to the end, and then it's harrowing um, for like the last ten minutes of this film. But the the actress uh, Sheila Keith, I've heard referred to as the Boris Karloff of middle aged woman killers, and <laughs> these Pete Walker. Films. I've I've always fondly considered her the Peter Cushing to to go with pete walker i can definitely that, that, see that. that that's how i see her because he's used her many times and he loves her with good reason she's a wonderful actress yeah and you'll see it it's especially in frightmare where it's about the the two daughters and the the husband and wife and the wife uh, at one point had ended up going into the institution uh because there was a time period where she had gone a little bit off the deep end and she got real big into cannibalism for a stint, as one does. And it's now years later, she's come back out of the, the institution, the husband and wife, they live at home. The, oh, the and daughters... her, hus- her husband's so devout. This is an important key factor here. He pled guilty to also being a cannibal killer yeah. so that he could get committed with her because he loves her so much. When in actuality, he was just sort of an accessory where he would help hide the bodies but he never, he never ate anyone, never killed anyone. Uh, but yeah, he went and took the fall for his wife. I mean, that's it's very arsenic and old lace of uh, mm-hmm. the aunts asking to be committed with Teddy. But yeah, so they're back home now, and it's the the younger daughter and the older daughter, and then there's these things that start happening around town that they start kind of thinking, oh, is is she crazy? Is she kind of coming back out of it. What's the case? What's going on with all of this? But we get Sheila Keith that you kind of run back and forth of her being able to do this high wire act of she'll have one scene where she's kind of Claire and talking and having a normal conversation. But the next moment that she kind of drifts off and is kind of back in her old ways of being a little kind of mad in the head and then going to going back into a, uh, very normal conversation with somebody else, reading tarot cards, things of that sort. So it's a really fun role for her to kind of sink her teeth into in this, especially coming into it. It should be noted that the narrative is clearly split in, into two storylines, where you've got the old, the elderly couple that have isolated themselves. It's more so the husband wanting to isolate the two of them because he can't fully trust his wife. So they're living on the outskirts of town in a big house. And then you've got the eldest daughter who is kind of stuck being the the um, the caretaker of the younger sister who's 15 
although she's clearly like 19 or 20, if not older, but she's playing a 15 year old who goes out and drinks and she's promiscuous and she's into drugs and she's just a really angry young kid. And, and the older sister has some resentment going on because, you know, her younger sister's crashing there, causing problems, having the cops come by, all this bullshit. So that is sort of like the split of the film where it's two different locations, two different groups. And then once you bring in a few extra characters, those two locations and situations start crossing into one another and creating havoc from it. Um and the whole time, like Tim had mentioned, there's a balancing act where you're not quite sure if the daughters are totally sane or not. You're not quite sure if the mother is on the right track or if she's totally relapsed into eating people. It's a really twisted, weird storyline. Actually, when you think of films like Hereditary that are more like, you know, a dysfunctional family drama, this was sort of like a dysfunctional family drama movie. You know, before it was in vogue, I would, th- I mean, yeah, I would it, agree. It, it opens in the 1950s where it's like a grainy uh, black and white prelude. And it's maybe like a five minute sequence that shows you, you know, the murderous ways of the mom. And then there's a bit of a courtroom moment. And then it takes you to like swing in London, you know, in, in the 70s. So for fans of, of vintage stuff, you know, you really get to see some cool like pubs and, uh, different architecture and London streets and stuff like that. I think that really does add an era of interest to, to the story because you're, you're really not getting a stateside story. You're getting something from England, which I think is always interesting. And there's a bit of prestige aside from it being competently made. The performances, I always find a good journeyman British actor, like a character actor. They always bring a little extra to the role and it makes me like the movie a little bit more. Yeah, I would agree. And from kind of my enjoyment of Frightmare led me into watching The Comeback, which was another Pete Walker film from the the 70s, where it's this music artist who, uh, again, is overseas, kind of working on his new album. He's trying to make a comeback. And there's somebody that is kind of going around and bumping off all of these characters that are kind of linked or tied or kind of involved with him. And it's him trying to work on the album, much to the enjoyment of his agent, uh, who is Grandpa Pickles from Rugrats, which as soon as I heard the voice, that took me back to like the the mid 90s. Plus, the lead wrote and sang the Love Boat theme song, the the actor, uh, Jack Jones, if you look him up, like and really the music in the film, it, it's all very close to like Love Boat style, like elevator music. Uh, so be be prepared for some really tacky crappy like set, it, it's really crappy music but it works perfectly it, it's you could picture this jack jones guy there's a meta element because he really is a singer um so i guess at the time i mean i was barely a child in 78 but i guess if you were in your 20s or something and watched this you might see it a little differently where it's like a guy you recognize playing a you know a singer I didn't know he did the Love Boat song, yeah, but listening to this scene. in the movie, I was like, I actually don't mind this. And he, surprisingly, for somebody who, um, I'm assuming he was a singer first and an actor secondary. Probably, yeah. Has a, a surprising screen presence and charisma that it's just some of his reactions end up being very natural just because it's 
just off the cuff remarks or kind of his sarcasm that ends yeah. up making the character likable, even though throughout the film, it's a lot of like, it's you big, dumb, beautiful idiot for kind of a, a lot of what's going on during all of this. So if you see Frightmare, if you like Frightmare, if you're interested in kind of continuing along with the, the Pete Walker of the, the mystery of it all, um, another one, like Mike said, Pete Walker used Sheila Keith a lot, similar to kind of a, a Peter Cushing scenario. If you like, um, you know, pure exploitation, there's a Pete Walker film called The House of Whipcord. It's a wonderful film that really fits his aesthetic and with all of his movies. But Sheila Keith, you know, she, she makes a, a really memorable appearance in that, too. One thing I got to mention about the comeback, Tim and I were talking about the film recently, just because we both really like it. There's a couple of slow spots that almost have a, a repetitious quality, and I get why they're there, because it's fleshing out the situation that this guy's in, but there are four or five times where he gets up out of bed, and you get to see this giant dead freaking Bigfoot on his chest, because he's got the hairiest chest I've ever seen. <laughs> but there's four or five times where he gets up, and they, they shoot his chest in close up. And he puts on this blue robe and then he starts walking around to look around for these noises he's hearing. And and he truly does have like a charm, even though he's not very charismatic, but he is like charming. I don't know how you can have the two of those <laughs> together, but they're there. It, it's, it's actually kind of endearing. But one thing about the comeback that I think is awesome, and it, it's kind of a spoiler element, but I want to tell you guys about it because it's something I've never... I don't think it's ever been done in another movie, at least not anyone that I've seen. There's a there's a few really good murders that peppered throughout the movie. And there is this plot device where a person gets murdered in a very vicious way and you see their dead body. And then as the film progresses, it cuts back to this person's body in the same exact position as it's rotting. So, you know, a half hour goes by and in the film time, it would be like a week, let's say, and it'll jump back. There'll just be this jarring shot of the body. Now it's got maggots and stuff coming out of the eyes. And it was so freaking cool. I almost wish that they used that all the way through. I would have liked to see it like deteriorate more. It was a really cool plot device. And as it stands, it's good. And I, I'm really glad that they that they kind of went outside the box a little with um, trying to do something creative. and. Also, since we're talking about the key elements that made slashers slashers, this is one of the first movies I can think of that fully utilizes a, a costume and mask for the killer. It's a killer that's wearing like an old rubber dime store like hag mask, very similar to the mask in this Canadian film called Curtains that came out a few years later. But it's definitely creepy. And I want to talk about how the ending is so connected to a very famous modern slasher film. But if I say the name of the movie, I ruin the end of this film. So I'm not going to say it. But if you watch this film, when the reveal happens, you're immediately going to think of a very famous modern slasher movie. So yeah, so after kind of picking up Pete Walker with Frightmare and the comeback, uh, we're kind of back to Argento for another big one. For anybody familiar with Deep Red or Profundo Rosso, 
You're getting closer and closer to the most unnatural kind of death. You have killed. And you will kill again. Beyond shock, beyond horror, into total terror. What was that? Murder runs wild. Blood runs cold. Terror runs deep red rated R. Arguably one of his masterpieces. I agree. This was the first Argento I had ever seen. And this was like prior to Suspiria. So this is what I gauged everything else I had seen from him by. And (laughs) going back, I know I mentioned like Bird with Crystal Plumage and some of the other ones. Again, it's a... He's not a, an author. He's not a reporter. But this time he's a musician who witnesses a kill and uh, gets involved with a, a reporter as they're kind of investigating the, the death of a psychic as somebody's kind of going around and bumping off anybody that has information or maybe connected with knowing about what's going on with all of this. But it's it's everything you would want from Argento. I mean, still... I think there's two very different Argentos. We have the Suspiria, we have the opera, we have like the more supernatural side of him. Yeah, Argento has, he has two modes. You're right. There's supernatural and then there's Black Love Killer. It's like reality and then spacey out there, like nightmare reality. Because it's like, I would hate to compare this to something like Suspiria because I feel both of them, yeah, both of them are his masterpiece but two very different sides of him. Um, whereas this is kind of going hard into the whole idea of, as you said, like the classic black gloved killer. This is Giallo at its finest of there's an air of mystery. There's an investigation. We have red herrings. There's somebody kind of bumping everybody off. There's yeah. all of these kind of unique kills as they go through of kind of as characters die. There's um, a lot of real interesting kills in the last 10 minutes. For it's, sure. <laughs> it's all the staples of Italian cinema. There's animal violence. There's just a little girl who's killing a lizard or something like that later in the film. There's the the, the, the pulsing driving score of Goblin, you know, an amazing oh, Italian yeah. prog rock band. Seriously, if you look at Giallo's as pizza shops, like every town in America has, you know, 40 pizza restaurants, depending on how big the size. If you look at Deep Red as like a pizza restaurant, it's it's serving you the most glorious blood red wine reduction of awesome. You know, it's like the best pizza you could possibly get with a delicious glass of wine. It's like if I take every jello film and rate them all i mean there's just this headache of is deep red first or is like blood and black lace first like one is more rooted in reality and one is a little bit more like uh stylized but but seriously like deep red it's just freaking perfect it's it's so good and that's with all of all of the trappings all of the things that could be even perceived as negatives of jello cinema it is a like the plot line is convoluted. There are two or three sequences that get a bit talky that you, you wish you could trim them down a little. Some of the performances are dubbed well. 
Some of them are dubbed okay. Like all of those things that are just par for the course that you can't fix. You have to just embrace them as it's part of this genre of cinema. Deep Red is just fucking great. Like it's awesome. And I never get tired of watching it ever. Yeah. Again, it's a movie you just throw it on the background. If you have time, you pay attention to a scene. If not, then it's just nice to have. So definitely check out Deep Red. Check out kind of all of the the Argento catalog for the most part. Uh, yeah, by the way, I, I, I would rate Tenebrae, which is also a, a, an Argento film. Tenebrae is way up there. It, it's a really, really good, like classic Argento giallo. It's a little bit later in his career, but it's a good one. I'm I'm one of those people who like Phenomenon. I love it, but again, that's Supernatural, Dario, yeah. which is amazing. But yeah, totally different type of film, completely. Speaking of a totally different type of film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. <laughs> this man's identity is unknown. He was believed to be between 30 and 40 years old. He wore a white hood and was known only as the Phantom Killer. World War II had just ended. In Texarkana, Arkansas, boys had come home to their families. Husbands reunited with their wives. It was a happy, peaceful time. Until the phantom killer struck. The town that dreaded sundown. A true story. This is 1976, directed by this guy, Charles B. Pierce. The Town That Dreaded Sundown is so hard to put into words because it is its own thing. And it's so rare that someone could put a a brand new wrinkle into something. But this is like, true story, The Phantom Killer, 1946. There was a guy that killed five people and, and the tagline is telling you that he still lurks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. And man, this movie... It's not for everyone. I Like, that's an upfront statement. Some people might find this to be an exercise in tedium, and they might be bored out of their minds. But if you're a people watcher, and you like what feels like a genuine documentary, I mean, Tim, is there a horror movie that's more documentary style than this? I, only like a found footage type of movie. Yeah, like, it catches me off guard at how into the the documentary feel and aspect that it has and i mean it feels like somebody dropped a serial killer in an episode of andy griffith show like it's a lot of the the police reaction well a lot of the police in this movie um it's very lackadaisical in terms of their interest in solving this case but it does feel like it's not necessarily a a beginning to end plot line for the movie. It's more like you're watching a dramatic reenactment of here's the killings that occurred during this time frame, and you're just watching us kind of play through everything that had happened. Yeah, I think I think people that love City Confidential and um forensic files and things like that, if you're like a true crime nerd and you dig those sorts oh, yeah. of shows, you're gonna see like a vintage reenactment where it's not cheesy-ass video that just makes it look crappy like a Forensic Files reenactment. It's shot on film, and and as Tim mentioned, the vast majority of the actors aren't really that good or naturalistic. But every other person in the movie 
you know they're all real extras. They're all real people from those towns. Like, when they walk into a diner, everybody in the diner are the people from that town, except maybe the two cops that are talking. So it creates this bizarre alternate reality where it's like, this feels so damn real, except for when, like, the lead actors are doing their thing. Yeah, and I know we this kind of goes against one of our roles that we had talked about for the slashers of they have to have he has the iconic look, but an iconic weapon. This guy has a knife on the end of a trombone. He like uses an axe or something like that. At one point, he pops in a window with a pistol. It's I almost feel like the the killer from the town that dreaded sundown is almost more of a menace than something like Jason Voorhees because. You don't know where he is. You don't know where he's going to pop up. You don't know how he's going to pop up because he can be anywhere at any given time. And he is not afraid to just be like, yep, I'm a serial killer and I'm going to use a gun. It's Yeah, and you don't know there's why. There's no honor. <laughs> it, it, he really has like a Zodiac vibe. Um, oh, yes. And, you know, the if you like film poster art, I own a, an original one-sheet poster to The Town That Dreaded Sundown because it is a balls-out awesome one-sheet movie poster. A really nice oil painting of a sundown, uh, like you're seeing a, a sunset over this small town, and just this in-your-face painting of basically a baghead Jason or, or Elephant Man. I mean, it's a guy wearing a, a white sheet over his head, like tight like a potato sack, tightly pulled around the neck, couple of eye holes, and that's it. And I think he's wearing like um, you know, blue collar work boot type like black boots and maybe um I think he wears a tan coat with jeans or something. And that's it. And like Tim mentioned, it's it's just this thing where it's a whole town. So it isn't like you're screwing around at Crystal Lake and you're going to get killed by Jason. You could be across town just walking your dog and this guy might shoot you or he might stab you. Or he might tie you to a tree, creep you the fuck out, and then stab you in the back with a knife tied to a trombone. Which sounds laughable, but it's actually really disturbing in the movie. Yeah, because it's partially funny seeing him try to like, hey, I have an idea in my head. Yeah, like, like why would you do like that? This. Yeah, like, why would you even do that? And, and him running through the process of being like, okay, so kind of getting a feel for it. How is this going to work? Okay. But at the same time, it's just horrifying of like, can you imagine being there and having to like, while he workshops how he's going to kill you, like directly behind you? So it's it's an iconic character. It's a mixed bag in terms of some of the the content overall but absolutely worth checking out just to kind of see a lot of where some of this kind of came from a lot of the ideas that we haven't seen since um, yeah it, it I, I enjoyed it it does lag in a few spots but i felt that the th there's enough really iconic compositions you know visually speaking where i do think it's a it's a pretty awesome little movie that it kind of goes under the radar i mean you'll see it on a list here and there from people but oddly enough and we're, we're saving uh, a talk about this for our remakes episode that we're going to be doing but like three decades later there was a sequel it's like i when i saw that there was a town the dreaded sundown i assumed it was a remake 
And then I sat down and watched it and I was like, holy shit, this is actually like a sequel that acknowledges the murders and it acknowledges the town that dreaded sundown as a movie. It was a very clever idea. And I, I really was caught off guard because I wasn't expecting it to be like that interesting of a sequel. Um, it's flawed, but it, it's, it's a good one. So yeah. if you watch this and you just need more like Sackhead killer, check out the remake. Um, even though that last act, there's a, there's a few moments that kind of ruin a lot of what came before it, but whatever. Next up, I mean, ah, this is one that there's a lot of love for this movie right here. Moving along into uh, 1976, we have Alice Sweet Alice. Alice was too old to play with dolls and too young to make love. Brooke Shields, as you've never seen her before. She was too beautiful to play with boys and too young to play with men. So Alice began to play with death. She's made repeated requests that the kids see a psychiatrist. She has a knack of making things look like accidents. He's trying to kill me! No more dolls, no more toys. Alice only plays with bodies. A story of unnatural love and unnatural death. So we talked about kind of the the iconic look, the iconic feel of different characters in these films for the slasher films. And in Alice Sweet Alice, it's all about the these two sisters or kind of these two little girls who are going to be going for their first communion. One of them ends up being found dead. And then kind of it's the everything's an upheaval of some people think that it's the the other girl who did this. Some people are trying to find out who killed the the other child. And we're kind of introduced the following along with this little girl that you see is kind of unhinged, kind of a little odd. Um, a cop at one point looks at her record and says, this girl's nuts. So they have a... The, the, the girl he's speaking of is the Alice of the title. Just, yes. just so you know. Her name's She's Alice. She's the, the sweet Alice. Bro- Brooke Shields, um, they plastered her name over a lot of the re-releases because she was so famous. At the time, she wasn't really famous, and she seriously is only in it for the first 15 minutes. So she's actually not the star. Paula Shepard plays Alice. Um, she's an accomplished little actress. I think she's actually, she has a, a knack for looking younger than she really is. So there are some moderately questionable things that she says. <laughs> and it, when you're watching the movie, it seems a little disturbing because she's supposed to be very young. But the actual actress was older. I think she was in her early 20s playing a, a maybe a barely teen, like a 14 or 15 year old girl. Yeah, because by the time this movie came around, I think she was like, it would have put her at like 19. Okay. Which yeah, maybe you, 19. it does not look it in the movie, which is odd. And until you mentioned it, I would not have realized that. But we've kind of followed along with her and she seems kind of off kilter. She's a little odd. We kind of see like weird tendencies with her. Initially, when I first saw the movie, I was a little annoyed by there's so many characters that are constantly like screaming at each other throughout this. But I feel like once things kind of get rolling, the other two thirds after you get through the initial really start to kind of level out in terms of the the movie as a whole. 
Yeah, the, fir- the first act, there is what I could only call a brashness. Like when you hear music that isn't mixed right and it's very tinny and brash, the sister in this movie, oh my God, uh, not the two lead girls, but the, the mom's sister, the aunt. The aunt, she, her performance is so theatrical and it grows on you to where you, you end up liking it. Um, but kind of like if you've ever seen The Invisible Man, the the older woman in The Invisible Man that's always yelling and screaming, this this shrill voice. Man, the aunt has a shrillness to her voice that will drive you nuts. And I'm hoping Tim's going to plug in a sample here of her screaming, Alice, it was Alice, because that'll give you a perfect example of what we're talking about. Do you realize what you're saying? But power oh, yeah. through that because the movie's got a lot to offer. Yeah, there's a lot of shocks to this movie um, that even kind of coming into it. Granted, I didn't see it early on. I didn't see it until probably um, the past six years, seven years or so. But there's still things that for a movie in the 1970s surprised me, um, caught me off guard with a couple things here. Um, I know it's been compared to not necessarily accurately, but it's been compared to another movie, but I almost don't want to say it because it might give away too much as far as this. Um, yeah, the twists in this are solid. They're they're really, really well handled. Um, yeah. And we've been talking about Giallo cinema. I would call Alice Sweet Alice the best example of an American take on a Giallo. It has a very Italian feel to it. Um, yeah coupled with a a truly sleazy undercurrent like there is a guy who plays the landlord he's just a disgusting character all around and uh i was listening to a commentary track about alice sweet alice because it's such a well-crafted film i wanted to know more about like how this film came about and the director alfred soul was telling people on this commentary that he he was scouting locations and one of the locations he was scouting was near a cemetery and he was in the cemetery taking some photos and there was this creepy you know charlatan scam artist guy this really obese man dressed in like a a, a crappy suit that wasn't pressed and he it had a, a um a priest collar and he was impersonating a priest and was going up to people that were mourning their loved ones at at gravestones. And he would offer to like say a service for some cash. And he ended up talking to this guy, found out he wasn't really a priest and he hired him to play this sleazy landlord in this movie. (laughs) And I'm telling you, when you, when you see him in the film, you just be disgusted. I mean, he he's eating cat food. He's covered in like cat piss. He kind of makes these sexual moves on the young girl alice it it's just uh the whole relationship between alice and this guy because she she enjoys the attention but she's also being really rude back to him she calls him fatty and says like you know you're disgusting and he's saying i'm on to you i know what you did i know you killed your sister all kinds of stuff it, it's um it's a fun ride it, it, like it keeps you guessing the whole way through and once again something that i think 
70s horror does better than any other era is the supporting characters are such characters. There's such great little moments that you get with these people. Uh, the aunt has this cuckold kind of husband who's just, I laugh every line he has. Uh, it, it's its a great movie, and I i wish more people would sit down and watch it because, um, I don't know, man, the, the Alice killer, the mask, and the yellow raincoat, the Catholic school they go to, they all have the same bright yellow uh, rain slicker type of hooded coat. And those cheapo masks that were readily available at every store. It's like a a clear plastic vacuum formed male or female face. They used to make them in like a male, female, and then like an old man and an old woman. The mask in this is a translucent like female party girl face with, with like a lot of rouge and lipstick and, and uh, eyeshadow. And it's such a creepy image to see this like small form wearing a bright yellow raincoat with this transparent face and a freaking butcher knife. It's it's just an awesome image. And yeah, so I mean, that's that's Alice Sweet Alice. It, it should definitely be on your must-see list. I also should note that it was originally called Communion, but the Catholic Church flipped their shit when they caught wind of what the movie was about. Uh, they just did <laughs> not want... They really made a big deal out of it, and it, it forced the filmmakers, I think overseas it was still called communion and you could, you could find like movie posters from other countries, but in America they, they changed it to Alice, sweet Alice. So yeah, check that out. So after going through all of the sixties and all of the seventies, uh, there is a movie that we have left out, which we have <laughs> finally come to. It is 1978's John Carpenter's Halloween. Halloween, the motion picture about the most terrifying night of the year, starring Donald Pleasance. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Halloween, the night he came home. Rated R. So, what's the importance of this movie? Well, I will very quickly say... After we've covered Black Christmas and a few other movies, Halloween was not the first of its kind. However, it was the best of its kind at that time, and it knocked a door down. It absolutely, it's the one. Like, it doesn't matter if Black Christmas, I think Black Christmas is an equally good film. Each one is better in different ways, but Black Christmas was not as popular. It didn't, it didn't do that thing that Halloween did. Which may have been just a factor of people don't equate Christmas to horror, but when you see a movie Halloween, it's, yep, I'm going to go get butts and seats for a horror movie called Halloween about this killer. Which started out as the Babysitter the, Murders? Yeah, the Babysitter yeah. Murders. I wonder, it would have probably just gotten forgotten under that title. Yeah, so who, whoever decided to change it to Halloween, which I don't know if that was John Carpenter's intent or if that was... Um, the producer change. Well, Carpenter has openly said that he loves Black Christmas and was aware of it. Deborah Hill was John Carpenter's producing partner, writing partner. But as much as I love me some John Carpenter, I, I love him. He's probably my favorite horror director if I look at an entire history of all of the films from each director. But Deborah Hill, what a amazing, trend-setting, like incredible woman. 
she was. She unfortunately passed away. But Deborah Hill not only produced Halloween, she also co-wrote it. So as much as everyone gushes about John Carpenter's Halloween, man, it's it's John Carpenter and Deborah Hill's Halloween, hands down. But again, like Chainsaw, this is a lightning in a bottle moment that doesn't happen often. Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, you've got, you know, a Moby Dick situation of of Dr. Loomis and his nemesis, Michael Myers. And, you know, history was made. Yeah, which kind of, I don't know if this sets us up for the the whole idea of like the the psychiatrist or like somebody who's connected to the killer that's they make fun of it in rise of leslie Ver- vernon like the whole ahab scenario of yeah. this character that's following them around and hunting them down and the the good guy who's always going to go after him but dr lobus is essentially kind of our, our first introduction to that character trope or kind of that character archetype absolutely um, and up until this point you and i have been talking about literal proto slashers that that embodied two or three or four of our our main um you know pillars of what a slasher film is i think we can both agree halloween is from 1978 and it is a bona fide died in the wool slasher it's it's got every element to a t of what a slasher movie is so it's not really a proto slasher it's an actual slasher movie yeah which Love or hate kind of how the the series progressed after that point, and I know certainly we'll we'll talk about Halloween Kills someday. Um, <laughs> There's so much other shit to talk about in the Halloween series before we get to Kills. Well, I mean, we'll we can cover Kills during the the 2000s plus slasher yeah, we episode could. from we the, should actually, but yeah. So I mean, Halloween it almost feels like it's it's a movie that everybody even accidentally should have seen at some point so it's almost moot kind of repeating the the plot points of it yeah for anybody unaware the the whole thing of michael myers is this a child who had gone crazy and killed his sister and then ended up in the institution and met dr loomis his psychiatrist and years later he escapes on halloween night and he's going back to his old house and he's kind of tearing his way through town of killing all of these different people and um, all of them kind of connected to Laurie Strode, uh, which is Jamie Lee Curtis's character as she's trying to not necessarily, like she's not even involved in like some of the previous ones we mentioned from the sixties and seventies of she's not investigating him. She's not involved in this. She's just in the way, which later they kind of retcon it in that he's after her specifically. And then they retcon it back out years later again. But at this point, it's just Michael Myers is a shark and she's just in the water. Yeah, it's stripped down. It's it's so stripped down, so much like Chainsaw. It's it's interesting that these two movies may had the biggest impact, you know, on, on modern slashers because they're very, they're incredibly different in tone, but they both are stripped down. They're simple stories. Once again, there's not a lot of blood on yep. screen and something you mentioned in our pilot which has totally come full circle to this you were talking about one of the most glorious aspects of horror being controlled terror where you're being put in a situation that is going to take you on a very specific ride and you're going to be okay at the end and i don't think many films embody that structure 
more than Halloween. It just ratchets up tension with style and with grace. It is a graceful film. And you get a little bit of camp from Donald Pleasance. He's a bit over the top. Um, I actually think Jamie Lee is a little wooden in that film, but it's okay. It doesn't bother me. I kind of just accept it as like, that's Jamie Lee. PJ Souls is her perfect foil because she's just annoying as sin. But, you know, I like her for being annoying. It's like a perfect blend of different personalities in a very real world setting. And it's so simple and so well done that you don't even notice flaws. I know I've mentioned this to you before. I've seen Halloween so many times and maybe five or six years ago, I was watching it and I noticed that it's like springtime for the entire movie. And I started like then that because I've seen it enough to where I, I'm not going to miss anything with the characters. So I started like looking at it backgrounds while I'm watching the movie and you would see what must have been the same five to ten garbage bags of leaves thrown on different lawns but the trees that are in frame aren't in any way dying out from from autumn they're like completely in bloom and i couldn't believe that i've seen halloween that many times and that's such a major kind of screw up like when you think about it yeah it's like Haddonfield, Illinois, in, on, on Oct- like October 31st. It's actually the summertime in California, and it's blatantly obvious, but you never even notice it. Like, yeah, it's just nuts. But yeah, Halloween, it's a tough one to fault. Like, what are you, you going to bitch about? We talked about some of these, like, Facebook forums and uh, other podcasts where the people either just want to hate everything or they love everything without breaking down levels of that. And I've, I've seen way too many people comment about how they hate Halloween. It's like a piece of shit and I don't get what all the big deal is. And it's like, how can you say that here, Tim, we'll point out five sequences in Halloween or maybe it'll be six. I don't know that are absolutely perfectly mounted and indelibly connected to the horror genre. The first one I can think of is Myers stabbing that kid against the wall. And tilting his head in the moonlight, just watching him die. What's another one that's like never been topped? I mean, I always love the, the first scene where we get her and him of her walking home from school and he's just like off in the distance behind the the bush type situation oh look look where behind the bush i don't see anything you drove by so fast that when you yelled at settle isn't he yeah like the the whack-a-mole michael myers where he just pops up by bushes yeah like it's just having that shot from there and then it's i mean later we do that to excess with like jason just teleporting yeah in friday the 13th but it's still realistic at this phase and effective so another sequence is whatever genius on that production decided to put a white sheet like a ghost with the glasses of the dead kid like (laughs) that is such an awesome image and we haven't even talked about taking a, a a William Shatner mask and just, you know, part of it was probably luck with all the 
additional information available on Halloween. They couldn't come up with a mask. They didn't know what to do. And just as a one shot, they went and bought a bunch of masks. And this is what came out of it was let's tear the hair off part of a William Shatner mask. We'll cut the eye holes bigger. We'll spray paint it white. And there you go. It doesn't matter if it was partially, um, you know, luck. It still was something that was just like, holy shit, this is perfect. And then you've got other sequences too, like we haven't even touched on the score. I mean, it's like one of the best scores ever written for a horror movie. That chase sequence, you know, from one yard to another that ends with Jamie Lee in that louvered door of the, um, the closet with Myers like breaking his way into that closet. It's just awesome. Like it's, you can't say Halloween isn't good. I, I, I can't understand people that don't like it. Well, then just things like, I think this is the first time in my memory at least that we get a stinger yeah he's right over there and then you look back and he's gone which we'll end up seeing used time and time again with a bunch of other characters over time but this is the first time that i recall and in my head that stinger is always it's clear as day it's i immediately draws me to halloween but one other aspect of halloween that I think doesn't get mentioned enough is the cinematography of Dean Cundey. This guy is a genius. He shot so many films, just look him up on IMDb. But his cinematography, he also shot uh, Halloween 2 and 3, and that carries through. You can tell which Halloween films were shot by Dean Cundey because I truly believe that Halloween being what it is, it, it's almost an equal part split between the director, the two writers, Carpenter also did the score, so he's got to get the credit as a composer. Uh, and then you've got Dean Cundey shooting that thing. And I know Carpenter's got a great eye, but there's a reason he's worked with Dean Cundey on many of his best films, including Prince of Darkness and including The Thing. When you get Carpenter and Cundey together, I think you get that John Carpenter feel and some of it is the anamorphic lenses where if you watch Christine or any of John Carpenter's films, when a light comes into frame, it kind of pulls that light across the screen. It almost looks like a weird UFO kind of feel to it. These are things that are just completely connected to that movie. And I think it's very easy when we're talking about the importance of Halloween, a movie that was going to be just sort of a throwaway called The Babysitter Murders. It raked in so much money as an independent feature with a tiny budget, so much freaking money, that I don't think the slasher boom would have happened without Halloween. I just don't think it would have happened. And for that, you got to toast the movie for, for doing that. Yeah. So definitely, I mean, if you haven't seen Halloween, go see Halloween. But hopefully kind of the the beginning of the 60s until now gives you kind of a, a full scope of was Halloween the, the first slasher? Well, no, there were certainly other ones prior to it from what we've kind of covered throughout this, but it was definitely the first time that it checked pretty much every box. Some of them checked a couple, some of them checked more, some of them checked less, but this is the one that kind of hit on all cylinders of what exactly a slasher is. Yeah. And Speaking of the the shots of this movie, I love the ending shots from this film. It's just such a a perfect way to end Halloween. Oh, for sure. 
without a doubt, it's just it's a perfect it, it's a perfect movie. It is even with yeah. some of those ridiculous slip ups, you know, of like it being springtime or summertime, whatever it was. Uh, yeah. It all it all works for the film, you know, in the end. And I think that every film we've mentioned, it helped weaken the door. But you it's just you have to admit that Halloween knocked that door down. It, it just it created the floodgate. It was just unstoppable, and uh, and I'm glad it happened because we might not have had, I don't know, 17 or 18 other franchises that we now have if yeah. that movie wasn't made. And also now that the door's down, that'll lead us into the 80s on the next time we cover these, the, our real slasher series. We're going to try to get the 80s into one episode, but well, it's that's, we might it's have helpful. to do two. So yeah, so... While you wait for us to eventually cover the 80s, I know we covered the 60s and 70s today. There are still some movies that we really wanted to make our list, but just overall, uh, we wanted to make sure at least everybody is aware of them. Everybody gives them a shot. Uh, certainly ones like Tourist Trap. Tourist Trap. Beautiful young people looking for excitement are tricked, terrorized. <laughs> God help those who get caught in the tourist trap. Rated PG. It's kind of, it falls into this weird in-between ground of uh, not necessarily the physicality that we had mentioned. There is a bit of not necessarily magic, but a supernatural element to it. But it's just a, another kind of oddball, great slashery element or kind of the lead into the slasher. Plus, you get to see Chuck Connors in this movie for... Anybody who's familiar with the the old Rifleman TV show, now you get to see them um, murdering teens. So definitely check out Tourist Trap. It's always worth it. Other ones in terms of films like Savage Weekend. Savage Weekend, the shocker of the year. One that I was turned on to more recently, but another kind of the kind of a backwoods feel of the people up at a cabin, kind of the murders happening. But it's great characters uh, in terms of some of the ones that they had in this. Like we get to see David Gale from Reanimator showing up as one of kind of the, not hillbilly folk, but one of the those characters from that. We get to see um, like William Sanderson that you might know from like Blade Runner, other movies. But it's, I almost want to say it's, it has like a Tucker and Dale feel on the back end of you get introduced to some of these characters that are they actually bad? Are they not bad? And we're just assuming they're bad because they're the two hillbilly guys that live out in the woods, whatever the case may be as far as this. Um, but another Savage Weekend worth checking out if you can find it, whether that's digital through Amazon or you pick up a, a DVD or a Blu-ray. So uh, we have yet to really talk about Vincent Price. I mean, he's more of a... Uh hammy classic horror film guy but he did make two films that i would consider proto slashers um madhouse is one of them no one ever leaves madhouse rated pg parental guidance suggested it's a great film it's from 1974 it's a, a rare uh chance to see vincent price and peter cushing they're kind of playing more of a meta situation where, where they're Vincent Price is playing a horror icon actor and he has a, a character that he's known for playing. And it's a fun one. 
you should definitely check that out. There's another film called Madhouse, but this one is it's it's a Vincent Price film, which also leads me to another Vincent Price film that is probably my favorite. It was his 100th film that he made, and it's The Abominable Dr. Fives. What lovely music for a murder, or two, or three, or nine. But you I will kill. But you can't, Doctor. I am already dead. Are you ready for Dr. Fives? Probably the most terrifying motion picture you'll ever see. That film is awesome. Uh, again, not really sure how much of a proto slasher it is. He is killing people. He's picking them off one by one. It's a bunch of doctors that he blames for his wife's death. And he's killing them with different curses from the Bible. It, it's just a zany, campy, <laughs> wonderful movie, and I love it. So definitely check those two out. There's also a movie called The Drive-In Massacre. Warning, Drive-In Massacre has been deemed too terrifying for the average viewer. The risk is entirely yours. Uh, an extremely shoddy, low-budget film. It was shot over the course of four days, and I think it was 70... 1976, I think, is the year. But if you like vintage drive-ins, you, you could do a lot worse than uh, Drive-In Massacre. Follows uh, two police officers that are terrible actors. One of them wrote the script. There's a couple of kills that are laughable, but very bloody. And I do think the ending saves the movie and makes it worth recommending. Uh, and it's barely an hour and a half. I think it's 70 minutes or something. So check out Drive-In Massacre. Leveling up in terms of quality is the Toolbox Murders. Toolbox Murders, a true story, rated R. Not the Toby Hooper remake, but the original 1978 Toolbox Murders. It stars a genre staple, this guy named Cameron Mitchell. And um, I cannot stress to you enough how much the Toolbox Murders is like two completely different movies jammed together. But if you like your your slasher movies um, sleazy, for lack of a better word, it's just really grimy and sleazy. And it basically follows a guy who's killing people with items from his toolbox in this sort of seedy um, apartment complex. And uh, it's good fun. You might end up making fun of it while, while it's on, but there's something to be had there. Yeah. And I know certainly we have... Um... We won't go too far into some of these, but like when a stranger calls. And the terror just begins when a stranger calls. Just so we can kind of mention that, I think it has one of the the greatest openings to a movie that everybody thinks is the ending as far as this. Because I don't want to spoil anything, but <laughs> I haven't seen this in ages. The part that everybody always thinks is the ending is like the first, I think, what, 15 minutes? Yeah, I think it was actually, I could be wrong, but I think I, I think it was a short film. And it was such a well-made short film that I'm pretty sure they ended up crafting a movie around it. That could be a different film, but I think it's When a Stranger Calls. It does have a very iconic beginning that, like Tim said, 
anyone who hasn't seen the movie would totally BS who they're talking to. And that, oh yeah, the ending of When a Stranger Calls is so great. But it seriously is the beginning of the film. Yeah, um, it, like, it opens yeah. with a twist. Yeah. And it, it's it's a cool one. It owes that twist to one of the movies that we were championing earlier in, in our in our talk. But yeah, there's When a Stranger Calls. There's Tower of Evil, which is uh, a British uh, 70s film. It's a bunch of people that are archaeologists and they're they're looking for some sort of treasure and they get picked off one by one on this island. The, the killer uses a, a couple of pretty cool implements of death. I, Tim had mentioned Axe. Did you mention that or I had mentioned that? We, we kind of, we were just talking about we movies we, we wanted to you know, put in there. Axe is a fun one. The Hills Have Eyes. We kind of want to cover more in like our hillbilly backwoods type of murder podcast, but you might want to watch Hills Have Eyes. Toby Hooper made Eaten Alive right after Texas Chainsaw about the Starlight Hotel. It's an awesome movie with this really weird character who's played by Neville Brand. That's from 1976. He keeps a pet alligator next to his hotel that he feeds people to. It's loosely based off a real alligator murderer. Not the alligator, but the guy that owned the alligator. Um, And one little note that might get people to check this movie out is the fact that it's an early appearance by Robert England, who obviously went on to be massive as Freddy Krueger. But he's in this film. He plays a super shitty guy named Buck. And Quentin Tarantino pulled that guy's dialogue and applied it to a character in Kill Bill. So if you're a Quentin Tarantino fan, check out Eaten Alive, and I think you'll chuckle when you hear the exchange from Robert England that was that was used. So a couple other notable proto-slashers would be The Boston Strangler from 1968, directed by Richard Fleischer. Uh, this movie, it's a little off the wall. It stars Tony Curtis as Albert DeSalvo, who was the real Boston Strangler, uh, arguably, because there were, uh, the, well, you have to watch the movie. There, There's a little bit of contention as to whether one man was doing all those stranglings, but it's a real fun vintage proto-slasher. It's actually set in Boston, and uh, it's a wonderful film to, to just sink into if you're feeling some true crime vibes, which also leads into Eyes of Laura Mars, which was actually written by the one and only John Carpenter. A second writer came in, and kind of screwed with his original concept. He was never thrilled about that. But I feel any fans of John Carpenter should check this movie out because it is part of his film repertoire. And you also get Tommy Lee Jones in an extremely eerie early performance. And our list just continues endlessly. And we're not going to just dog this out for another 20 minutes. So you should definitely check out The Love Butcher. It's a crazy movie. There's another uh, Pete Walker film called Schizo that's completely off the wall. Yeah, we have Island of Death, another film, Killer's Moon. Don't Go in the House is freaking ridiculous. I mean, you've got a you've got a guy who has a special room in his basement that is fireproof. It's like metal walls, and he puts people in there and just blow torches them to oblivion, like burns them to a cinder. Really, really mean-spirited movie. But yeah, I I think we've given you guys a very diverse and interesting uh, look at the 60s and 70s. I know Tim and I are both totally elated at the thought of doing the 80s. But I think we'll probably give you 
two or three episodes of something else. Uh, maybe we'll do anthologies and maybe we'll do some remakes or sequels. And then we're going to come right back and we'll be doing the 80s soon because there were over 100 slasher movies made in that time frame. Yeah. And this way we give you a little break so you can watch the 36 movies we just mentioned. Yeah. And now your quote for the week. I believe in slime and stink and in every crawling putrid thing, every possible ugliness and corruption, you son of a bitch! I believe! In you. So thank you again for joining us in discussing the proto-slasher era of the 60s and 70s. You can follow us on Twitter at Don't Open This Pod or Instagram at Don't Open This Podcast. Shoot us an email over at Don't Open This Podcast at gmail.com with any questions, suggestions, or what your favorite 60s, 70s slashers are. If you like the show, help us out and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find us. Thank you so much for taking some time to hang out with us tonight. Stop it!